2: And welcome to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. My name's Selena Godden, and you're tuned in to the June episode, the seventh episode of Roaring Twenties Radio. This episode we're going to be focusing on own it on own it a storytelling lifestyle brand because stories are live coming up own it are going to be launching a week-long online arts festival between the 8th and the 14th of june it will feature live readings discussions conversation sessions and workshops from authors and artists that they publish and represent and we're going to be showing you and sharing with you some of the highlights of the festival that's coming up i'm here socially distancing in my home, making the radio show from home with my dear friends, Amma Rose Abrams.
3: Hi, everybody.
2: And my other friend, Matt Abbott. Hello. We're here socially distancing. We're in lockdown. How's everybody doing?
3: I'm all right. It's been obviously a little bit strange, um, but it feels very good to slowly but surely be coming out of it.
4: Yeah, little baby steps. It's a weird, isn't it, to think of this as being a baby step, but we're getting there.
3: Yes yeah
2: yeah it's been a very strange time um and i hope that everyone out there that's listening is all right um and that you're all taking care of yourselves um how's everyone coping with everything that's going on i mean literally the world is on fire
3: i've been finding it a little bit intense being very torn between really immersing myself in what's going on you know listening keeping up with the news watching the protest tests trying to you know be informed and in touch with the mood and feeling like actually I can't really deal with seeing so many images of violence and negative commentary about what happens to black people as a black person so I'm torn between looking off kind of stepping back into my lockdown baking and guitar playing and writing (laughs) and actually going and really doing my job I guess is part of and you know and my social my social conscience of really taking in what's happening how about you how are you feeling about it all
4: um it's it has been really difficult I found the last few days in particular uh really tough on social media um big obviously what's happening but also people's different responses to it Um, And sometimes you feel powerless and sometimes you feel like you have to get up and do something about it. I think that music and art are even more important than ever uh, in terms of um, helping out with mental well-being and sort of reconnecting with your soul. Um, But yeah, it has been a really scary time.
2: Yeah, harrowing, absolutely harrowing. I kind of feel like I'm on a seesaw. I have really bad days, um, negative days, dark days, and then I have these days where of productivity and almost mania, creativity, like trying to write about it, trying to document it, narrate it, trying to get this into, get this moment down so the truth is told. Um, We're going to share some links and ways to help um, later on in the show. But before we talk anymore, that's enough talk. Let's have some music. I'm really feeling music at the moment. I'm playing music more than ever, and this track definitely sums up how I'm feeling right now.
5: Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared,
0: troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say
5: that they would rather switch
2: than fight. You're listening to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. This is our socially distant show here at home with Amarose and Matt Abbott. Um, You've just listened to Fight the Power, Public Enemy. Now we're at the part of the show where we turn to Matt and Matt will tell us all of the highlights of things that are going on in lockdown for poets and poetry and things like that, spoken word and books and things. Go, Matt, go.
4: Cool. Thank you very much. Um, I've got a nice big list here so the BBC recently commissioned 40 poets around England uh, as part of their make a difference campaign and they were all celebrating the individual acts of heroism in their local communities so talking about the small acts of kindness and stuff like that poets including uh, Levi Tafari, Saila Katebi, Maria Ferguson and loads of others Um, I think that was really nice and it was on the BBC the localised tv channels and radio stations so it's getting poetry out there to people who might not listen to poetry. That's, that's fantastic. fantastic. It's a nice way. Lockdown poetry is like a new uh, subgenre, isn't it? Have you seen that inst- Insta poetry gets loads of stick done it nowadays, and like lockdown poetry is like a new subgenre it gets but even more stick.
3: Really? So Do I you think like that it. stick's deserved, or are you gunning for them?
4: Uh, no, I don't think it is deserved. I mean, obviously, some Insta poetry is really bad, and some lockdown poetry is really bad, but that's no reason to. I think the fact that it's for snobby establishment having to go at it just makes me want to defend it Yeah, yeah. So, same, um, same yeah. If
2: you're not writing down and narrating the horrors that are going on, what on earth are you writing about?
4: Yeah, absolutely and the fact that the BBC have commissioned 40 poets from all around England I think is a really nice way to frame it um, A woman called Hannah Ledley, she has a spoken word playlist on sabotage reviews so every week she just tweets a different video and writes a little article about why she loves the poem which I think is a nice thing on Thursday the 11th of June, Rhymes with Orange are doing their 8th birthday show, that's decent that isn't it, Rhyme, Rhymes with Orange is a really good spoken word night, um, they're doing their 8th birthday show, um, Nims and Fugs, my label, we're doing our Insta sessions every week, so on the 9th of June I've got Emily Harrison doing a, a session for us, and on the 16th Camille Mahmoud. And we have a different poet every week, which is Buzzing. Um, the BBC's Words First programme has just launched that's for poets and artists who are aged 18 to 30 the young swines um, it's in partnership with Young ID in Manchester Noi in Scotland and One Extra, BBC Asian Network and contains strong language that's really cool have you heard of that BBC Words First?
3: no, actually no, no I have but I haven't picked up on it recently but it's ringing a bell for me
4: it's a really good like, artist development programme, and there's like mentoring and, and gigs and, and content and stuff like that. Uh, Apples and Snakes are helping to promote it as well, so that's a great opportunity. Um, also, for young people, uh, Teresa Lola, she's currently the Young People's Laureate for London. She's launched a campaign called Say Your Peace, and peace is P E A C E. Uh, that's just basically a space for young people to use poetry to find peace and solace so they can upload their poems, meet like-minded writers, get a bit of feedback, get a platform because apparently 80% of children who have suffered with mental well-being um, are in a worse situation now because of coronavirus like it's really impacted on children's mental well-being so this um say your peace campaign is just to give them a space to use poetry to express themselves oh i love that that's yeah, brilliant it's nice, That's really cool yeah you can find that on the spread the word website so they share poems that people have submitted and then teresa Lowell has written one herself as well so that's through spread the word who do loads of great things excellent yeah um, Kevin P. Gilday and the Glasgow Cross—they've just released a brand new album called *Pure Concrete*. Some beautiful merch out there. You can get it on white vinyl. You can get a tote bag and a CD, and you can also get some nice little postcards as well if you want to support them. Uh, Kevin P. Gilday and the Glasgow Cross. Kevin's great, isn't
2: he? Yeah, he's amazing. Lovely.
4: It's a really great album as well. Um, Travis Alabanza—they are a poet and theatre maker and writer who've just shared a, sto- a short story called. Uh, Uh, called Binary. It's part of the Anthems podcast uh, which is part of Pride Month. It's about um, growing up as a black queer person on a council estate in Bristol and talking about uh, maths and uh, binary and figuring yourself out. Um, Travis Salabanza, they are an amazing artist. Uh, They're a trans feminine gender neutral artist who um, speak about some really amazing issues. Um, Bad Betty Press their latest release is by Anya Koenig uh, it's the Anya's debut collection called Animal uh, Animal Experiments uh, and it's been launched on Zoom on the 25th of June um, Roger Robinson's got a great new show on the BBC iPlayer called Finding Paradise in Poetry which is about personal poetry and political poetry because like you were saying Selina like it's not all about the angry political stuff is it sometimes it's nice to look at the personal stuff and the, more, the the gentler stuff. And anybody who knows Roger Robinson knows that that's worth listening to. Um, and then I just wanted to plug two little competitions. There's a competition in Barnsley called Hear My Voice. That's open to all ages. And also another one called Project Hope, both of which you can find on my website because there's uh, links about entries and stuff in there. Um, so yeah, loads of stuff going on. Loads of gigs, loads of podcasts, loads of videos. Um, it's actually done the spoken word community quite a lot of good this every cloud and all that. Yeah, Yeah,
2: you've got to, yeah. I mean, it has been incredible. The, 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 I mean, Luke Wright is now on his 77th gig. Yeah. I mean, hats off to Luke. Let's give him a round of applause. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, um, so just a couple of gigs that I want to mention, obviously we're going to be talking more about the Own It Festival. Um, uh, my specific contributions are on June the 9th, I'm doing a poetry double bill with Sophia Thacker, and we'll be hearing from her soon, um, and we're doing a poetry double bill, and it's going to be on Insta Live at 8pm on June the 9th, and then on June the 12th, as part of the Own It Online Festival, I am been going to do an exclusive reading from my debut novel Mrs Death, Mrs Death. This will be the first time mm. I've ever read from the book and I'm going to come online and do it on Instagram on Insta Live at 9pm on June the 12th. And then the last little gig I want to plug is June the 14th York Festival of Ideas Between Worlds and Webinar. I'm going to be in conversation with Anna Phoebe. Those of you who've been following um, us, you'll know that we've just started to work together, but working together... Uh, um, separately like through the internet and uh, sending each other files and poems and music and making work so that that's going to be a lovely thing that's coming up at the York Festival of Ideas on June the 14th Now, this is Roaring Twenties Radio, it's the Own It's special, so let's hear something from the festival, one of the festival highlights, and I think I would like to kick off by sharing something from Courtier Newland. Courtier Newland is a great friend of mine, Um, we've known each other for a long time, I think I've read all his books, his latest book is fantastic, but that's less about me, let's have Courtier telling you about his book himself. Here's Courtier.
5: Hey everybody, Uh, hope you're doing okay coping with lockdown, hope you're managing to exercise, it's a beautiful day today, so I hope you can get some sun, you know, stay off the streets when you can, and uh, please avoid others when you're out, you know, it's very difficult for us to be indoors for this length of time, but I think it's important when we're out, because we need to get out, to just try to avoid others, so I hope you guys have managed to do that, and... families are safe and well. Um, I'm gonna read A River Called Time which is my new novel. Uh, It's published January 7th 2021 available for pre-order at Amazons and Waterstones and all the good Indies near you. Uh, The book is set in an alternative parallel world where slavery never happened and African cosmology is the dominant religion. Uh, London is called Dinium and due to climate change there is difficult to breathe and people wear face masks. Uh, A huge building called the Ark has been constructed in what we know as inner city and it's been constructed to house the rich while the poor people live outside apart from those who serve the rich in some way so that can be big or small. Uh, My protagonist is a journalist so he works for the media and in that way he serves the rich but people can you know they can be uh, Uh, nursery nurses they can be cleaners they can be engineers you know they can they usually work for the rich in uh, many different ways and i'm going to read a chapter where the main character marcus experiences what it's like to actually live in the ark oh and before i go on my name is courtier yeah and this is my novel a river called time the alarm gave marcus a jolt he blamed on his body clock at first until he recognised the beeping. He disengaged the covering, hit stop, knocking the lightweight melatonin bottle over in the same movement, yawning as he wiped his eyes, stepping from the sleeper before he had time to think. The tarred floor against his feet accelerated his waking state. He made for the bathroom without slippers, relishing cold. Marcus passed the living room window, fully aware of turning his head, unable to look, feeling only partial shame. He ignored the manual switch that controlled his ceiling lights, normally set to his favourite cloud and blue sky simulation, entering the bathroom and turning the, turning the dial on his power shower, anticipating nothing until he walked into the cubicle with a sigh, cold water touching his skin. Soon he stood beneath a fierce cascade that slowed to a feeble trickle after exactly eight minutes. He got out and, on a whim, shaved his chin bare. He found a large towel and dried himself, wrapping it around his waist while he moved towards the kitchen. His cereal bowl was full when he wandered into the living room. The room was consumed by lack of light, empty enough to cross without banging a limb against any furniture. A sofa, an easy chair, a small coffee table, a BS and music centre embedded in a far wall. The flat was featureless, apart from those few items. There was next to no sign anyone lived there at all. He crossed the expansive living room floor hearing dogs bark on streets below rustles and the clatter of materials nosed and tugged scavenging no doubt further away a high-pitched sound of a car alarm echoed faint as the drip of a tap equally relentless he listened hoping the sounds would cease when they did not he shook his head Marcus approached the window pushing a button nothing cursing he pulled at the curtains until they came apart in angry jerks, revealing more tiles, a ledge. Of course, the mainline power was cut. He'd forgotten for a moment. No oral connection or peripherals, backup generators only powering housing essentials. Connection was considered a luxury in his zone. He leant forward, raising himself to take a first look outside. The riot had only lasted a night but the damage was extensive. Block after block of mayhem lay beneath him. The apartment allocation was on the 15th floor, giving an obstructed view, unobstructed view of the surrounding area. His adopted town was demon-ugly. Smoke rose from numerous places. Cars and trucks flipped upside down like bugs left to die on their backs. Shop windows were smashed while in others, fitful lights were flashing strobes beneath passing clouds of smoke. He tried to convince himself that they gave the town a magical glow. It looked more like the end of the world. Last night there had been a football game, the winning supporters deciding to have an impromptu party on Prospect Road. First the people gathered, dancing to music, women hitching skirts to fires and bending low, scuffing behinds on pavements. Men yelled and drank more beer, more tequila, throwing empty bottles and cans against walls, grabbing partners they desired, moving with them. Someone climbed the roadside, shaking it hard enough to bend. The crowd pummeled the sign into pieces before throwing them at the nearest grocery store window. When glass broke, people surged inside, eager to steal. Others fought. Markish and Chilisey watched rioters burn and loot, trying to reassure each other they wouldn't be killed. Although Prospect Towers gave relative comfort, it also made them an easy target for the less fortunate. There had been riots where people in the towers had been murdered in order to appease jealous anger. Tied up, burnt, beaten, throats cut. Since those days extra measures were taken and residential security was tightened to an almost frustrating degree. Yet Marcus never quite fooled himself into feeling safe. They had frozen by his window, watching the crowd spread through shadowed streets, joining friends and family from nearby blocks. It seemed as though every back alley and main road was filled with people, screams the sound of everything breaking at once in the confines of their level the noises echoed and bounced back to find them soon they hugged in fear chinashay shivering beneath him like an injured bird she was an earnest young woman Lotse by descent a photographer art, a photographer for art Light, though she refused to record what they saw they ate drank and talked until half past three when the riots moved from their block Chinashay, left for her own allocation. He remained at the window for another half hour before retiring to bed.
3: And welcome back to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. You just heard Courtier Newland reading from his book *A River Called Time*, which is coming out. January of next year so that's January 2021. This is Emma Rose and um, we're just about to hear an interview I did with Jo Goodman, the daughter of the late Stuart Goodman. Stuart Goodman whose book um, One Saturday in 82 on Broadway Market is published on Own It sadly passed away uh, in April of this year due to complications connected to COVID-19 his book of photographs shows a day in the life of Broadway market a street in Hackney um with a market on it that went from being just another street in Hackney to a world famous kind of tourist hotspot that it is now it wasn't always that way like much of London um so this this book of photographs shows you what it used to be and celebrates the people that lived there. You'll hear Jo talk about it and she'll talk about it much better than I am doing right now, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Stuart, her father. He worked as a Fleet Street photographer for 25 years and this book um, came out just a week before he unfortunately passed away. There was due to be a party a celebration for the book which obviously was cancelled due to the lockdown but I think they're looking to reschedule this late when it when it's possible and um, but you can order the book through own it um, on their website now you're gonna hear me speaking to Jo earlier today about her father his work and her memories of him Hi Joe, um, thanks for joining us on Roaring Twenties Radio today over the phone. Um, just really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about the work of your dad, Stuart Goodman, who we um, sadly lost to COVID nineteen. Um, could you start by just I uh, just, just he sounds like such a fascinating man. Could you tell me a little bit about your dad?
6: he a fascinating i think he would definitely take as a, as a compliment um and i'm probably a bit biased but i think he was a really wonderful man um he grew up in hackney on the woodbury down estate and spent kind of the first half of his life in london um he was a fleet street journalist so working for a lot of the papers uh in the 70s and 80s and kind of was always on the cutting edge of everything that was going on, um, and kind of loved that. I think um, he mo- we moved to Norfolk when I was quite young, and I think he always missed London. Um, he never quite managed to get the same buzz. You can imagine Norfolk life moves a bit slower, um, but he he you know kept that kind of interest in what was going on and um, he did a lot of community projects here as well so he um, worked with people on things like day in the life projects mm. um, to capture what was going on in the town we lived in um, and yeah he was just a really warm funny man who everyone really warmed to. Yeah.
3: So talent as a photographer, cause like you've got to be able to get people to let you take their picture let you in get the access and you know and it's I think it's a whole it's part of being a journalist of any kind to be able to gain people's trust I think in a genuine way
6: yeah definitely and I think one of the things we really like as a family now looking back at his photos is just seeing the kind of look of trust in people's eyes when they're looking at him or, you know, the smile because he was a very funny guy so quite often you can see people kind of having a bit of a laugh at him or um, he really just put people at their ease and I think that was something really special about him. Yeah,
3: And it must have been... It must have been so kind of like just it's one of those jobs, those kind of like superstar jobs. The idea of being a photojournalist, and it must have been fascinating to hear about his stories of working on Fleet Street. And um, to, did you would you look at his work or anything like that while you were growing up or?
6: Yeah, I mean he'd have loads of stories and it always felt quite funny to us growing up in Norfolk and he you know, he wasn't in the middle of the cut and thrust of all of that, but he'd tell us stories about the time he offered Prince Charles a slice of pizza, <laughs> um, the time he um covered the Brixton riots and someone told him that he should wear newspaper as it worked as armour and he rushed against a knife or, like, and somehow this newspaper stopped him getting stabbed so he, he had a lot of stories and also just I think the kind of camaraderie of working with the other photojournalists and you know, being right there as the story was unfolding so that was, I mean probably when I was younger I didn't appreciate quite how fascinating it was and maybe I wish I'd, <laughs> I'd written down those stories or recorded them but yeah it was always interesting to hear about
3: Yeah I can imagine and then just um i'm look. i um i received a copy of the book of in 19 in 82 on broadway market one saturday in 82 on broadway market full title and um and i love that because i used to live really near broadway market and i remember my mom worked near there and it was just as it was changing i remember the Filder video shop had opened which everyone i think was happy with you know and then it started to kind of go in different ways um you know move some great shops some less great shops I remember there was one shop that just seemed to sell jars of sweets that no one ever bought <laughs> and things like but it's just and I remember seeing his pictures up in Broadway market as a kind of um as a monument to what the market had been yeah yeah but um and he had a shop there is that right
6: yeah, he did. He had a t-shirt printing business there. Um, never particularly successful, I don't think. But yeah, he he lived on the market and he had a shop there and um, then he lived around the corner. Um, so yeah, he, he says, you probably read in the intro, he met both of his wives there mercifully, not at the same time. <laughs> so he had a really strong connection to the market over quite a number of years and was involved in the campaign to stop it being demolished um, in the 80s as well
3: yeah and now obviously it's an international tourist destination which is
6: strange. yeah Yeah, i think he always um had a slight element of disbelief every time he hadn't been to the market for a while and he came back and there was a new you know fancy wine bar or um something like that he kind of would stop and look around and you could see that just Sense of disbelief in his eyes that this, you know, quite nondescript street that always, I think, had a really strong sense of community, yeah. that it could become something so, so different. He also told the story of someone offered him um, to buy their flat. Um, I think something like they offered him, if he wanted to buy the flat, he could have that for £2,000, but if he took the business downstairs with it, they could get it. could get it for one thousand (laughs) pounds so it was like you know a lot of those businesses were massively struggling you know it was it was really kind of on the edge of of being able to survive at all so i think his disbelief at how it's changed um you know in some ways really thriving but in other ways you know there's arguments to say that you know there's been a huge amount of gentrification and that's been detrimental to a lot of people as well um yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's 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 a kind of two-edged sword,
3: isn't it? Because in some ways, it's great to see there being thriving businesses there, but also you don't want it to be at the cost of local life. Um. <clears throat> um. But these <coughs> images, I think, really provide a context for where, for the good or the bad, the market has ended up. And um, yeah, it's just really they're just these images are so lovely i mean you've just the classic shop you can see who's kept the shop fronts if the new businesses there and i love yeah. the context of the even the adverts that are up the the placard the billboards that are up on yeah the, like the british is it the british museum japanese exhibition it looks like it will be at the british museum and yeah um, the pubs and the fish and chip shop which is still there
6: Yes. Yeah, there are a few places that have kind of survived through it all, which is really nice. Um, but yeah, actually that adver- advert for the exhibition was one of the things that actually enabled him to date the photos because they were all taken on one day walking oh. through the market. Um, so he, my dad never had the best memory for details. <laughs> um, and it was before he met my mum. I'm sure my mum would have told him exactly when it was <laughs> if they'd been together. Um, but... Um, yeah that exhibition i think was what they what enabled them to actually tell exactly when he'd taken them oh, fascinating fascinating
3: and um i i i, I just i really love i really love this book i think it's wonderful not just because of my own emotional attachment to the area but just because i grew up in london as well and sometimes there're little parts that haven't changed very very small parts but there's just yeah. Sometimes it kind of, you have to do a double take at how much your home has changed in such a short time. Yeah. I think to remember how things were, because it influences how things are, is really, really important for preserving, you know, in the integrity of these areas through this gentrification process, which feels inevitable at the moment.
6: Yeah, Definitely, and I think that's the thing. In day-to-day life, you don't really think to photograph your surroundings. You know, you're not going anywhere special. It's just, you know, round the corner. But actually... You you do kind of lose that, don't you? And what's really nice is that, I mean, a lot of the people in the photos dad did have relationships with. He knew, you know, he was a part of that community. But also, there's been some really lovely stuff of people spotting people. So one of the one of the most amazing things was when he first sent the photos across to the publishers. Own it, um, Jason, who's um, one of the people there. He had actually lived pretty much on the market. Um, most of his life and he spotted his (laughs) mum and that was just so amazing and it was just like it was absolutely meant to be you know that those were the publishers that found the photos and published the book but it's it's really nice now kind of People being able to spot things that they'd forgotten, or things that they remember, people they remember, um, and that it is a record of a community and a, and a place that might not have felt remarkable to anyone at the time, um, but now it's you know changed beyond recognition. And so the fact that it's been kind of captured in a bit of a time capsule is really special. I think.
3: Yeah, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your memory of your dad. I really appreciate that, and um, talking thank to you for a bit about that. Oh no, it's wonderful! It's wonderful. <laughs> so, it's it's nice when we get to do these things that we want to do in the way we want to do them. But um, yeah, thank you so much um, for coming on. And hopefully, when everything's shut down, one of OwnIt's fun events, I, we might get to meet. Who knows?
6: yeah Yeah. fingers crossed we want to the book launch got cancelled um so we want to do him proud and do a big launch and memorial for him when we can
3: fantastic well we'll we'll um, amplify that here on roaring 20s and i hope to meet you then
6: thank you me too bye bye
5: Picture a man of nearly 30 who seems twice as old with clothes torn and dirty. Give him a job shining shoes or cleaning out toilets with bus station crews. Give him six children with nothing to eat. Expose them to life on a ghetto street. Tie an old rag around his wife's head and have her pregnant and lying in bed. Stuff them all in a Harlem house and then tell them how bad things are down south.
3: Welcome back to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. I'm Emma Rose and welcome to my art segment for this month. It's a funny time to be doing art segments because really we can't go to anything. Everything's digital and um, as wonderful as that is in its own way, I think we're all, I can. if you're like me, you're missing going to see things, you know, experiencing things in person, I'm kind of ready, I'm ready for the unlocking, the big unlocking, and across Europe, galleries and museums are opening, Berlin opened a while ago, and I think in Germany, they've even got a socially distanced concert hall, it's almost, someone um, coined it as being a first-class experience, as I've taken out two-thirds of the seats, and I I think it might be two-thirds more expensive, but, um, Basically, the arts are creaking into action, trying to find a way forward in the situation we're living in, in this pandemic. While in London, I think commercial galleries will be opening kind of around the 16th of June is the main date that I'm getting through. Um, But they're opening by appointment only for obvious reasons. My main thought of this is let's not let this last too long. Um, one of the most wonderful things I think we have in our art scene in the UK is the access level and the free access level that we have for everybody to go and see our museums, our galleries um, and our institutions. While obviously sometimes theatre and things can be very expensive, there are often deals and um museums and our main art collections are free if once you travel you'll realize very quickly this is not the case everywhere and while social distancing is important even for these commercial spaces and i think we need to remember they are commercial spaces commercial galleries i think we don't want to lose that we don't want to lose that access because i think it really feeds into what makes our scenes special here so while I'm going to be. Try, I'm going to be making some appointments. I'm going to be going to see some commercial shows uh, throughout this month. Um, I encourage you to try and do the same, just to go and have a look um, and experience these things as we have been experiencing them in the past. We don't want it to become an exclusive thing like it is elsewhere. We don't want to lose that special thing that the UK has in its relationship with the arts. Um, for recently, I've talked a little bit about theatre as well. Um, our theatres are massively under threat and underfunded to begin with. I think they run on a shoestring. Even places like the Royal Albert Hall are saying that there's a real danger there for their businesses. And But one thing that's been really lovely on lockdown is to experience these fantastic plays that have been coming online. Um, National Theatre has been putting stuff up every Thursday, I think in partnership with the Donmar Warehouse. Last week, I watched This House. Fantastic play. I loved it. And it was it's all about the kind of the end of the Labour era going into when Thatcher came into power, This House being the Houses of Parliament. Fantastic play. And I think that's up until Thursday this week. Um, and then I think it's Coriolanus. Um, this Thursday and then up for another week. Um, and I think they encourage you to make a donation of around £10 um, or £20, which you can do via text. Every little helps. Um, I, it wouldn't be right if I didn't mention what was happening in the US. Um, I'm seeing my colleagues, journalists and gallerists, artists out on the streets of New York almost well every night. Um, via social media um, and what they're posting is on many levels very disturbing it's also great to see everyone activated in, in the streets and often they are protesting peacefully and chatting exchanging ideas it's not all burning the house down and I think it's important to stress that as many people have been saying well yes there have been violence in the protests but no this isn't the story across the board So, um, that's my art update for this month. Not much to see, but plenty to think about. Thank you. And now we're going to have a poem from Sophia Thakur, who's going to be doing an Insta Live as part of Own It Festival with Selena at 8pm on the 9th of June.
4: Fear-mongering. Police aren't after
3: conversations. They're after culprits. They don't sharpen their fangs for us to feel safe, he wakes if he's lucky. With bite marks lining his back, branding his black. With empty court dates and arrests made in vain, anything to sow shame, anything to make sure young boy never feels safe, so of course I ran. I've read this story a hundred times over, and I would rather run blissful in ignorance but alive. When stopping could be suicide.
4: Black people, my people, my You're listening to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. we just had a short poem from Sophia Foucault, followed by her musical choice of Most Deaf. Uh, and now we're going to have a reading from Ashley Hickson Lovance. Ashley is reading from his novel, The 392, which is published by Own It, and he's going to be performing as part of Own It's Festival. On Wednesday the 10th of June, you can find out more on ownit.london.
0: Levi, I remember the colour so clearly. I had never seen anything like it. A bright golden orange, like the lava from a volcano. It was in fact an eruption of light, even though it was dark and pretty late. The flames were so blindingly bright. I could have worn sunglasses. The flames felt so hot too, I could feel it prickling my skin, but I just wanted to stay and watch the power of the flames at work. I remember watching as the fire engulfed the interior, the seats, the poles, the steering wheel, the windows, the stairs, both the lower deck and upper deck all aflame. After a short while, my eyes started stinging from the smoke, billowing, but I stood there still as the ash flew about everywhere like hot summer snowflakes and tears streamed from my eyes. I never thought I would see a sight like this, a fire causing so much damage, a bus dying in this way. All along Tottenham High Road, complete chaos, like something from the news when you hear about Syria and Afghanistan. Buildings on fire and hooded kids egging the police on, swearing and cussing, hurling rocks and glass bottles and messaging people from all over London who got the call to get involved. Police horses charging into crowds of people, crowds that included little kids and behind the horses an army of police officers in riot gear, batons, shields and swear words. It was madness. I could see why people were angry. I was angry. And to top it all off, we had police officers not... Even from the area, not even from London, some of them, trying to tell us what to do and how to feel. It got everyone even madder. This was Tottenham, not Hull. As the night carried on, the troubles got worse. I remember the broken glass showering down on us like rain and the plumes of smoke from the bus on fire still cascading into the sky and clouding the whole of Tottenham and the whole of North London, basically. Police vans barricading and blocking off certain roads but it didn't stop us. We ran around aimlessly like it was one big game, one big playground. People jumped on abandoned police cars, climbed over garden fences and smashed shop windows. We felt all emotions, anger and ecstasy, joy and pain. We were hurt and wanted to cause as much damage as possible. Get back at the police, get back at David Cameron and a Tory government and get back at the racist systems. And this was the only voice that we had. Forget marches in Westminster Square. This was our own special form of protest in the comfort of our own area. Like this little bus journey, it's been bumpy at times, but I've turned a few corners since the court case in 2011. I've had to do my time, clear my name and move forward quickly and trust me, that wasn't easy wearing high viz on the high street, sweeping roads and loading bin bags into the back of vans while my boys from the ends watched from across the road laughing and cussing. That shit was tough, but I studied hard in the evenings. St Anne's library became my second home. Ever since primary school, people have always told me I was good at arguing, something that comes from my days at secondary arguing with everyone that Manchester United were better than Arsenal, comparing Keane with Vieira, Giggs with Pires, Scholes with Fabregas. To be fair, no one could compete with Henri though, that guy was class. Even though we were all about five minutes from White Hart Lane, no one rated Tottenham, they've always been a bit rubbish. I was destined to work in law from young and it was more than just because for black parents, it's one of only three desired career paths, the others being doctor or engineer, of course. But being a lawyer always seemed to be a career that played to my skills, debating, fighting injustice, going blow to blow with the popo. 2011 was a setback, to say the least. I can't lie. I got sucked in by all the Mark Duggan hard stop stuff. It mattered to me. He mattered to me. I knew him. Not personally, but everyone in the end knew of him, saw him about the estate from time to time in his bends. He was like what Escobar was to Medellin and Narcos. He was one of those faces of the area, godlike in many ways. Not just him, but his whole family too. It was all the Mark-had-a-gun talk that got us really angry in the days after he was shot dead by people paid to protect the community. If he had a gun, he ain't going to shoot it at police officers now, is he? As I said to the magistrates that day, this isn't America. I had to do something. I needed to make a difference, defend the defenceless. That's why I became a solicitor, fight injustice, one case at a time.
5: Mm. Mm.
2: You're listening to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. Um, I'm Selena Godden, and that was my track choice for this show. Um, that was the great Arthur Flowers. He's a novelist, essayist, performance poet. He's a native of Memphis, Tennessee. He's author of novels Another Good Love in Blues, De Mojo Blues, and children's book, Cleveland Lee's Beale Street Band, um, and a memoir manifesto, Mojo Rising Confessions of a 21st Century Conjure Man. And a graphic nonfiction, I See the Promised Land. I met Arthur Flowers in ubud in bali a, a writer's festival and he gave me a copy of I See the promised land it's such a beautiful beautiful book um, he's published short stories and articles and he's a blues-based performance poet um, so please check out his work you'll find his blog is roots blog um, he's a cyber hoodoo web space <laughs> um, and his novel in progress is rest for the weary um, it's a meditation on prophecy destiny fate and the human condition he's also working on a non-fiction work the hoodoo book of flowers he considers having an online presence part of being a 21st century literary man so yeah check out his blog roots blog and you'll find him on um twitter too okay we've come to the bit of the show where i talk about books and um, i'm having a difficult time um, doing my section um this month i'm i'm really sorry um, I don't know where to begin with which books you should read and which books you haven't read and, and how to educate and how at times like this it's we're making lists and lists of, of trying to raise awareness and trying to find the books that people should be reading, could be reading, want to be reading. I wrote this tweet. Note. Making a list of black and brown writers, please include books of joy and art science and nature, space and history, beauty and laughter. The struggle is our life. It is an effort to get published. Not all black literature is essays on pain and hurt. The pain is in there, but there's also the hope and the power. And from that tweet, people started sending me some fantastic um. Um, suggestions of books that are not just essays about the struggle, not just essays about the pain, but great inventive and creative and imaginary books. So I'm going to read out some of your suggestions of what you want people to read. Um, Lisa Lovebucket talks about um, D, Hang on, Dominic Nelson Ashley and he's a brilliant writer covering themes of sex, love, death and music as well as race. Um, Tim Wells wrote in with "Brother Man" by Roger Mays. Um, someone else tweeted in and said that it's good to make lists of living artists, and that they deeply respect the works of, for example, Zora Neale Hurston. Um, Zora Neale Hurston, for example, but borrow her books, and why don't we all make a make a make time to actively be buying the work of actively working writers, living writers, and borrow the old books, which is a it's a great point. Someone else wrote in with um Tony Cade Bambara, Butchi Emma I'm so sorry, what's
3: Emma Emma Cheetah.
2: Emma Chita and Anthony Joseph. I've got Anthony Joseph's album. He's a fantastic writer. There are so many names and so many books and so many people to follow and to try to support and to put your money where your mouth is. Try publishers like Dialogue Books, Own It, of course, who we've been featuring in this show, Influx Press, Canongate, Cassava Republic, Jacaranda Books, New Beacon Books, and then, of course, bookshops that always put black people in their shop windows, for example, Newham Bookshop. Um, And then there's all the great books that are about the struggle, that are about the fight, obviously The Good Immigrant, which is in Japanese and in American and in England, England, England. Um, so I'm getting quite emotional here. Um,
3: But you've got more there. So what what else have you got there? Okay, so there's
2: Blacklisted, Slay in Your Name, Why I No Longer Talk to White People About Race, Queenie, Rainbow Milk, Natives by Akala, Girl, Woman, Other. There's so much reading to do and so much learning to do. But we're not here to do all the teaching and all the work, all the emotional work. You have to meet us halfway.
3: And what? But that, exactly. And what I kind of think is, and what a lot of people have been saying in myriad ways on social media is, okay, this momentum is great. Um, let's not forget that a man died, but this momentum is fantastic, and this focus on equality and rights and racist systems is really important. But let's not just share a picture. You know do a few likes and move forward and forget this let's make this something and respect the memory of george floyd and the many others that have that people are protesting at the death of in the us let's respect the moment and take it forward
2: thank you Thank you, Rose. And moving on from my, my emotional tirade, let's hear from Reggie. Uh, Reggie is signed to own it, and he sent in this poem.
7: I really want to take this time so that you can understand this part of me. We get told that we have options, but to us there's no visibility. We get pencilled into this lead box, told to kick rocks, and even though we have no food at home, told to get at least an A or a B in all of our mocks. See, the estate where I'm from is like a social confinement. Rich gangsters and poor graduates, the lucrative money gets blinding. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm going to sell drugs. But it's a self-fulfilling prophecy when they keep labelling us as a thug. Our mums graft away and show us so much love and care. They don't have their leave to remain in the UK so have to earn minimum wage every single year. They work odd jobs just so that we can literally be fed. I mean £2 a day for chicken and chips literally got our mums in debt. We got given £2 a day but lunch in school was £2.50. Ate something quickly in the morning and then went throughout the day hungry. After school, all we could do was eat chicken and chips, and then we got a little bit chunky. And that's when the gangsters in the area looked at us and saw that we were dirty. Our trainers had holes and our uniforms were tattered. Our trousers had to be repaired four times before they could be called battered. See, those gangsters stood there looking for young ones to mould. They offer £50 to a 13-year-old to go and sell crow and at first he says no, gets his supper then goes home. No money left on a gas card so now the house becomes cold. Next day he starts again, eats something quickly then goes and he's at the chicken and chip shop again and the same gangsters offer him dough. And he remembers, he remembers that his house was cold. He could hear his mum crying in the night because the light was about to blow. He knows she smiles in his face, but by herself, she feels low. So he reminisces on their offer, at first to sell Crow. Too young to think of the consequences, he sells it and gets 50. That's 50 pounds in less than 10 minutes, more money than he's ever seen. He slips the £50 in his mum's purse so that she can go and buy some lighting. She's suspicious about the money but she needs it so she keeps silent. They offer him more money if he goes to sell more. The chicken and chips has made his face spotty and has made him feel sick within his core. He accepts one more time, this time makes 200. Who's this kid selling on our turf? Now the opposition want him to be hunted. He hands over the 200, but this time his mum asks where he gets it from. Mum, I've been working, here's the light money. Quick, go and buy it because it's gonna go off. Another day of light and gas. Day by day, the family's trying. Once the kid goes to sleep, she's up again and the mother starts crying. She's received eviction letters and seen bailiffs at her door. She came to this country for her children so that they could have more. She came so that she can build and in the future so that they can never struggle. So now she struggles every day so that her children won't struggle. The irony. He eventually gets caught, goes to court and then gets a caution. He doesn't want to do what he's doing because now it's becoming exhausting. He's lost friends around him, more funerals than birthday parties. Rest in peace Jason, Cole, Joel, Max and rest in peace Charlie. The basics of life to some come at such an expense. Survival of the fittest is so real that sometimes it's a pretense. What if someone was to help him? giving visibility to something different. Told him that he can be a doctor or a creative and told him that these things were not too distant. An entrepreneur or a marketer, someone that can influence change. It's funny because when someone did, that's when things started to change. Growing up on an estate birthed a resilient spirit inside of us. We were made thick-skinned, where from a place where survival was a plus. It birthed energy, tenacity and a go-getter attitude. The transferable skills we gained are different, but they make for our servitude. That's why you can tell all of us no, but we'll still go again. Or you'll see that we're the hardest working people amongst all of our friends. It's because to us, this is more than just a career, but a chance to make anew. So that when we have kids, they won't have to go through what we went through. We never wanted to do what we did. We just tried to live day by day. So we have regrets, but we're grateful. Yes, we're grateful for our mistakes. It taught us life skills like no other and made us learn at an alarming rate. So I guess all I can say is thank you. Yes, we are grateful for our estate.
2: And there's a poem from Reggie Nelson. Reggie will be performing, um, talking at the Own It Festival on Saturday the 13th of June. Reggie Nelson is a most is most recognized by the media as an innovative young man who went from east london to the city achieving this by knocking on the doors of people in wealthy areas and asking for life advice on his journey reggie has completed five internships at various asset managers and a hedge fund in the city the most notable being blackrock and aberdeen standard investments reggie is currently an analyst for the investment management firm in london in London, group chair of the ACCA Emerging Talent Advisory Group and a youth mentor for one of the largest youth networks in the UK. Reggie has previously worked with the Cabinet Office as they continue to address ethnic disparities in higher education in the workplace. He has also been described by the former Prime Minister Theresa May as a persistent and inspiring young person. It was really wonderful to hear your poem, Reggie. Thank you roaring 20s radio the show for the 2020s roaring for art culture books poetry and activism with selena gordon Emma rose abrams and matt abbott
3: find us every month on soho radio
4: you can find previous episodes as podcasts and social media links at anchor.fm forward slash roaring 20s radio and the 20s is a 20s Up next, we have a reading from Shamila Shaohan. Shamila is a screenwriter, playwright, and prose writer. Her work is often a transgressive meditation on love, sex, and an exploration of a diasporic experience. She's particularly interested in the intersection of sex, power, and gender. She's been shortlisted for the Asian New Writer Award in 2009 and 2012, and she's currently working on her novel, Encircle. Um, Sharmila's going to be doing a live reading on the Monday the 8th as part of the Audit Festival. She's going to be live on Instagram at 7 o'clock in discussion with Chantal Lewis, talking about cross-cultural relationships and the third space. So this is Sharmila Shauhan.
1: On my wedding night, I slowly unravel my sari over my pregnant belly. I release my hair of pins and slide the many bangles off my wrist. I remove my chandlers one by one and take off my gold anklets, undressing each part that is now wife and soon to be mother, but was only hours ago a bride. We ease into bed, exhausted but full of expectation. I place my hennaed hands over my husband's skin and that night we do what most newlyweds do. But as we find each other the sanctity of ritualised communion fresh on our skins, there is an awakening of the new life ahead of us. Beyond physical in this merging there is something that is deeper ancient, a kind of cultural communion. That day under the instruction of our Hindu Pandit, we literally tied our clothes together and walked barefoot around the holy fire. Later, we gave libation to our ancestors and, under the guidance of our interfaith minister, fed each other sweet, sour, and chilly foods and exchanged cowrie shells. Such rituals had nurtured our respective bloodlines for over thousands of years. But most of our guests at our 150 small wedding, had never ever seen them merge like this before. Many of our relatives had possibly never even seen a relationship like ours, never mind one formalised in this way. You see, relations between our two communities haven't always been the most harmonious. There were more than a few people in the room who were shocked, or perhaps even a bit ashamed of my choice of mate, while others were perhaps a little thrilled by it. You see, I've crossed over one of the biggest taboos of our time, whatever race you are, and I married a black man. I'm a second generation South Asian woman, a Londoner, from a family whose roots lie in Kenya and Zambia, where languages were foreign and money was made, but culture was always saved. I'm breaking a lot of rules. Despite this, I've always been very comfortable being Indian. Maybe less comfortable being a diasporic Indian, but that's another story. Growing up in the UK, there's always been an inherent fear about losing my culture. I was brought up in a way that suggested my culture, my Indianness, was constantly under threat and was going to be eroded by Western ideals. I was taught to love and protect it and never ever marry outside of my race.
4: Thank you to Shamila for sending us that reading. We're now coming to the end of the episode. Thank you very much for tuning in to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. You can find previous episodes as podcasts, as well as links to our social media channels at anchor.fm slash roaring Twenties Radio, and the 20s is 20s. You'll find links to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and like I said, the previous episodes as podcasts.
2: In this show, we've been focusing on the Ownit Online Festival, which starts on Monday, the 8th of June. You can find out more about that by going to the Ownit uh, website, which is ownit.london. Shout out to all of the people that are in the Ownit family, and also to the people that are in the Livewire family, the Nymphs and Thugs family. We shout out to Inua Ellams and Sabrina Mahfuz, Nikesh Shukla, Vanessa Kisuli, who else, who else? Uh, Monique Roffey.
3: Tyrone Lewis. Niven Govinden,
2: Niven Govinden, Bridget Minamore. Repeat Beat Poet. Sile Katebi. Nikita Gill. Afua Hirsch.
3: Kit Duval.
2: Bernadine Everisto, Nafisa Hamid. Raymond Antrobus. Malaika Booker. Casey Bailey. Anthony Anexakuru. Jeffrey Bracco. There are so many amazing writers, amazing books. If you, I stumbled a bit earlier in the show. If you go to my Twitter, you'll find all the answers and suggestions of amazing Black British um, and 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 uh, writers and artists and musicians and people that are making incredible, inventive, and excellent work.
3: We also wanted to mention um, where you can donate if you wanted to support the protesters. Uh, and the family of George Floyd and other people who've died at the hands of the police in the United States. Um, so we, we're just going to read out some places where you can donate. You can check uk, and she's helpfully made a list. So you can verify, you can check and verify. Um, so we can donate Black Lives Matter. There's bail fund, there's lots of different bail funds and there's a link here to a specific one where you can spread your donation where it's most needed. You just put in the amount you wanna donate and the website does it for you across the country in the United States where there are protests. There's the National Police Accountability Project. There's Color of Change. There's Justice for George Floyd. There's the Family of George Floyd. There's the Fight for Breonna Taylor. There's the Family of Omad Arbery. And there's also the family of Belly Majing- Maj- Majinga.
4: Yeah, as well as that, of course, there's people that are being affected by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And it, studies have shown that people who are uh, black and brown are more likely to be affected by it. So we have uh, we have the Trusseltrust.org, We have the Big Issue Foundation. We have uh, the Refugee Community Kitchen There's also been a rise in domestic abuse in lockdown, so you can get help and support. There's a link on there. Issues with landlords, uh, and also funding for writers and poets as well at spreadtheword.org.uk. So there's a fantastic uh, list of links.
2: And then don't forget also there's Windrush and Grenfell that also need our help. Um, That's a lot to take on. That's a lot... And thank you for all your generosity and all the people out there that are sharing these links and trying to make the world a better place and to to move us into a place of change.
3: Thanks for listening, everybody.
2: Tune in next month to Roaring Twenties Radio. Thank you.